The Greek philosopher Socrates once described with great eloquence the ideal way humans should live and the ideal society in which they would be able to live as perfectly as possible. His disciple, Glaucon, objected. He did not believe such a city of God existed anywhere on the earth. Socrates answered, whether such a city exists in heaven or ever will exist on earth, the wise man will live after the manner of that city, having nothing to do with any other, and in so looking upon it will set his own house in order. If you're acquainted with Jordan Peterson, this is going to sound familiar. Jordan Peterson is a modern-day psychologist, philosopher, sage, cultural prophet who says when he's asked, do you believe in God? One of his responses that I've heard is that I live in a way as if God exists. Where did he get this from? He got this from Socrates. Socrates had a worldview that pictured, that envisioned an ideal city. And this was a place of virtue. This was a place of human flourishing. This was a place of justice. This was a place of courage. This was a place of order. And he wanted to live after the way of that city. He wanted to bring the ways of this ideal city into the earth and lead a people to live according to this ideal city here on the earth. It's really interesting how God puts eternity in the hearts of men. As I study the ancient worldview of the people groups around Israel, I'm amazed how they intuitively know things that are true, but it's been twisted. It's been bent out of shape. It's been pulled in wrong directions. Yet there's something in what they're seeing, something what they're longing for, something in what they're hoping for, their aspirations, their dreams, that actually God put that in their heart but it would be fulfilled by another city that actually does exist. Last week, I introduced a concept from Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11 is when we have the famous passage about the Tower of Babel. That the people in this Mesopotamian area of the ancient Near East, they wanted to build a city. And it says, with a tower reaching up into the heavens. Now we have at our fingertips, through archaeology, much literature of the ancient Mesopotamian world. 
And throughout Mesopotamian literature, almost every occurrence of the expression describing a building with its head in the heavens refers to a temple with a ziggurat. So we talked last week a little bit about this tower was a ziggurat. Now, this was a time in Mesopotamia where there was urbanization. Things began to get more organized around the city complex. And in the city complex, at the center of the city in terms of spiritual significance was these ziggurats devoted, dedicated to the god of the city. And then next to the ziggurat was a temple. Now, if you remember, the ziggurat, the biggest feature of it is a stairway that goes all the way up into the heavens. There's actually, there's actually nothing inside it. It's all filled in with dirt. It's not something you go in. It's not something to go in. It's not like a temple, per se. It's, it's representative. It's symbolic. It's representative of this stairway going up into the heavens, which they saw the gate of heaven, so that divine messengers could travel up and down this stairway, bringing the blessings of their gods down to earth, really bringing heaven to earth. That's how they saw it. They were, in my opinion, somehow connected through oral tradition and the telling of stories from generation, as well as with eternity in their hearts. They were connected to this idea of something was wrong with the world. They were connected to this idea that heaven belongs on earth. They had some sense of this. Because remember, the purpose of the ziggurat wasn't to go up to heaven it was for the gods to come down the stairway through the gate of heaven, down to the earth to bring blessing holistically. Blessing to their crops, blessing to their families, blessings of security, blessings of protection, blessings of prosperity, blessings of children and grandchildren. So it was very holistic, even the pagans, in how they understood blessing. It was material and spiritual which is more spiritual than, unfortunately, some people who grew up Christian who think of only blessing in the spiritual sense and not the holistic material and spiritual. Now, obviously, there's extremes with the prosperity gospel, and we're not talking about that. We also have in the literature the names of some of these ziggurats. The one in Babylon, other ones in the Mesopotamian world. Here's some names of these ziggurats to show that this was their worldview, what I'm talking about, which helps, gives, a back, gives us a backdrop for understanding the biblical worldview interacting with the cultural worldview of the time. So the ziggurat in Babylon, its name was Temple of the Foundation of Heaven and Earth. Another one, temple that links heaven and earth. Another one, temple of the stairway to pure heaven. So as we can see, 
the way they saw these ziggurats, remember there's also a temple connected to it. So the gods could come down the stairway and go into the temple, bring blessing to the people as the people worship. Now, one major contrast between this picture and the biblical worldview is the gods came down to get their needs met. The pagans served their gods because their gods had needs. They needed to be served. They needed to be fed. They needed to be comforted and consoled. Yet it was a kind of manipulative relationship where if you give the right sacrifices, the gods will bless you. They'll bless your crops, your family, your fruitfulness. Could someone get me a glass of water, please? Now, this is the backdrop for the calling of Abraham, and that's what I want to focus on today. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called to leave his land, whatever city he was a part of. It would have had likely a ziggurat, and likely that city would have been dedicated to a city god. And the Lord told Abraham to journey away from his land, which was an indication of journeying away from any false gods. And he was to journey away from his clan. Clans also would have their own gods. And his family, family also would have their own gods. So he's leaving idolatry. And God has a vision for him. And God's inviting him on this path. He's inviting him on this journey to follow him to a new land. To follow him in a vision for a new kind of oneness than the oneness they were uh, doing at the Tower of Babel. Remember that oneness was characterized by worshiping of a false god. It was characterized by homogeny. Where God, in the vision he gives to Abraham, was to go to this land... And he was going to make Abraham a great nation, the nation of Israel. And all the families of the earth, hear the distinction, all the families of the earth would be blessed in Israel. Would be blessed in this great nation that would come from Abraham. So you have this vision of this new land that Abraham is to go to. You have this vision of this Humanity of Israel and the nations, oneness with distinction. Oneness without confusion of identity. Oneness without blurring, obscuring identity. All the families of the earth would be blessed in Union with this people Israel. In oneness with this people Israel. So this was God's covenantal fatherly vision that he's imparting to this father Abraham. This vision for a new land and a new people that would be one 
but would be diverse. That would be one, but would all have unique people group identities. And there's nothing here in the vision that God gives Abraham that would indicate that God was wanting to obliterate all these families of the earth's identities. There's nothing in the text that indicates that he was wanting to obscure it or obliterate. He doesn't say, I'm going to make a great nation, meaning the nation of Israel, and I'm going to make all the nations become Israel. He doesn't say that. He says that all the families of the earth will be blessed in Israel. This beautiful picture of oneness, relational unity, relational oneness, yet this differentiation of identity. Oneness with distinction. Now, what was Abraham looking for when he was going to this land? Let's read from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. Beginning in verse 8, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he migrated to the land of promise, as it were, foreign dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So Genesis 12, on the backdrop of this movement of people, this unity movement, this ecumenical movement, to build a city with a ziggurat, bringing heaven to earth on the land, on the backdrop of that, because remember, they didn't get their goal of their gods coming down the ladder and blessing them, did they? They got the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob coming down and confusing their languages. So a God did came down, the one true God came down, not in hatred for those people, but the people were off. Sometimes ecumenism gets off. Sometimes oneness movements get off, and God is into oneness, but he's not into oneness without distinction. He's not into homogenization. He's not into obliterating individual identity and people group identity. He's not into that kind of oneness. He's into oneness, relational oneness, with distinctions that he ordered for his glory and for mutual blessing. But Abraham's going to the promised land looking for a city. He's looking for a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Reading on. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive when she was barren and past the age. And she considered the one who has made the promise to be faithful. So from one... From one, and him as good as dead, were fathered offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as uncountable as the sand of the seashore. These all died in faith without receiving the things promised, but they saw them and welcomed them from afar, and they confessed that they were strangers and sojourners on the earth. 
For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If indeed they had been thinking about where they had come from, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they yearn for a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Going on to chapter 12, beginning in verse uh, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, a joyous gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are written in a scroll in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous ones made perfect, and to Yeshua the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of something better than the blood of Abel. Now replacement theologians, they read something into this text that's not in the text. They read a Gnostic spirituality into the text, and they think that because this speaks of a heavenly city and a heavenly homeland, that now that the Jewish Messiah has arrived, the promised land and the eternal promise of Israel inheriting the promised land is no longer relevant because that was just a type and a shadow of something spiritual, of something heavenly, of something disembodied, and that is bogus. Because even the pagans in Abraham's day knew it wasn't about that. Even the pagans weren't rocking that Gnostic spirituality. Even the pagans wanted heaven to come to earth. Even the pagans were building a city and wanting the gods to come down and bring heaven into the city to link up heaven and earth in a city. Even the pagans sometimes are correction to the people of God. Sometimes we need Jordan Petersons to wake up and correct the people of God. But Abraham, according to the text, and we're all about the continuity of Scripture here, was looking for a city. He was looking for a new Jerusalem when he set on, the, set on his journey to the promised Holy Land. He was looking for a city. He did want a city on the earth just like the pagans did. He did want heaven to come to earth just like the pagans did. But God was the one who was initiating this. It was on God's terms and God's way. Abraham was given a vision from God to be the instrument, to be the chosen vehicle, to be the chosen vessel that God would use to restore the city of God on earth as it is in heaven, beginning in the land of Israel. And that vision is unchanging. That promise is irrevocable. The land of Israel is a permanent possession of the Jewish people, but God's vision isn't just for a land that Israel would inherit. His vision is for heaven to come to earth in the land of Israel. Because his vision is that his home and his people home become one home. Unity with distinction. God has a home in heaven. He gave humans a home on earth. His vision was not for these to be separated. His vision for these to come together. And they were together in the Garden of Eden because that was a sanctuary. They were together in the Garden of Eden because that was a place where God's home and human home intersected and interlocked and intermingled. But that was broken. Oneness was destroyed. The exile happened. Human relationships torn apart. 
their authority usurped by the evil one, the serpent who came in the garden, crafty and sneaky, and usurped the authority given to humankind. But God had a plan to get back to the Garden of Eden. More accurately, God had a plan to get back to bringing his ultimate vision of a new Jerusalem city-like garden coming to the earth. And this is where we're journeying to, friends. This is where repentance and faith take us to. We are on a journey looking for a city. And it will come on the land of Israel. And the glory of God will spread across the earth. The knowledge of the glory of God will spread across the earth as the waters cover the sea. Have you ever noticed that the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 begins with Genesis and logically goes through the biblical story, picking representative characters in a chronological order through the biblical story, even into the intertestable times before the coming of the Messiah. And it's saying all of them were looking for a homeland. All of them were journeying to this city that would come, that God promised, that God assured would come on earth as it is in heaven. All of them were looking for this. All of them were wanting this. All of them were dreaming of this. But they were waiting. And then in chapter 12, remember, there's no chapter breaks in the Greek or the Hebrew Bible. That's when we get to the passage that Sam taught on today about fixing your eyes on Yeshua. Because the king has come. The mediator of the new and better covenant has come. The king, the son of David, has arrived on the scene. He has arrived in the present evil age without terminating it. He has arrived in the present evil age in this first coming to wreak havoc on the kingdom of darkness. And to liberate Israel and the nations through his death, burial, and resurrection. And to bring a remnant of Israel and a remnant of the nations together in ecclesia. To lead them forward into his vision of a city coming to the earth. That the Messiah, we're to fix our eyes on him because he is the king. He's the one that's going to do the last lap. He's the one that's going to take the people of God and bring us all, the people of old from Genesis, all the way to the people who follow him to the end of the age. He's the one that's bringing us all together into the vision of a city coming on earth as it is in heaven. He's the one we follow. He's the one who will bring this vision to fullness. He's the one that will save Israel at the end of the age. He's the one that will bring a harvest of the nations in at the end of the age. He's the one that's leading us, the ecclesia, the remnant of every nation, tribe, and tongue connected to Messianic Jews. He's the one leading us into this vision, this journey, this victorious journey. But we are followers of a crucified Messiah. And that's why we follow a crucified Messiah, knowing that we are going to suffer on the journey, knowing that we are going to experience attacks on the journey, persecution on the journey, trials on the journey, hardships on the journey, difficulties on the journey, pain on the journey. But we have one who went through all of those feelings and physical feelings and mental feelings and emotional feelings and racial, relational feelings before us. 
He went before us so he sympathizes with our weakness. He knows what it's like to suffer in this evil age. He knows what it's like to feel pain and struggle and agony. His prayers were heard because he offered loud cries to God. In reverence and fear, agony, he sometimes experienced in the depths of his soul. Obviously on the cross, but not just the cross. So he is the one, the one who knows how to suffer is the one who is leading us all the way home. He's the one leading us all the way home. I want to encourage you, you're going to make it home. If you fix your eyes on the king, you're going to make it home. If you fix your eyes on him, you're going to make it home. You're going to make it home. You're going to make it. 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 Persevere. Put your eyes on the king. If you put your eyes on the king, he's going to bring us home. And he's going to bring God's home and our home together on the earth in the land of Israel and the whole world. Do we have the same vision God gave Abraham? Kingdom living's vision's really old. It goes back to the garden. It goes back to the patriarchs. Our congregational vision goes way back. It's really old. We're not trying to flash up some new cool vision. Why don't you come on up, Johannes?